Though the term is famously associated with Dr. Martin Luther King, it was the American theologian Josiah Royce who first put to words the notion of the beloved community. Not a utopia or a future reward for goodness, but a vision for the here and now, accomplished by people committed to peace, justice, and bending the arc of the moral universe. Or said when one cannot find the beloved community, she needs to take steps to create it. And if there is not evidence of the existence of such a community, then the rule to live by is to act so as to hasten its coming. The water warriors we met did not live in perfect communities. They lacked resources, there was infighting, bureaucracy, but moral courage is doing the work to create the beloved community anyway. The beloved work that is the foundation for a better world. The motivations and backgrounds for why people engage in this work are complex and long. But after a while, you do start to notice a pattern. November the 2nd, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. First of all, I think there's something powerful about a mom you know, coming to her legislature and saying, what, what are you doing here? Pediatrics 101, like, is the, like one of the first things that we learn in, as pediatricians is that moms are always right. Like, trust the mom, you know, listen to moms. Council member Watson about Black women being the mothers of all mankind. And out of that... Oh, my daughter wants to say hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs> I'm gonna get to her. She's part of the story too. I'm Desiree Gleason. And I'm Grace Gibson, and this is Poison and Power, the Fight for Water, a Moral Courage Project, a partnership of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice. Episode 4 Beloved Work. It's timeless, really. The justification to act, protect, and fight is rooted for many in motherhood. Someone has to protect the family's access to food, shelter, and water. Time and time again, you see the women taking on this role. It reflects a value that seems to stretch from Appalachia to Michigan. An ethics of caretaking. A connection mothers and maybe women in general have to the environment and humanity's relationship to it. The environmental movement is over two centuries old, with generations of women shaping policies and laws within the field as well as fighting for the communities they are a part of, demanding that they and their families have the basic human rights to clean air and clean water. Some of the most prominent activists in both regions tie the beginning of their activism with motherhood, like Barbie Ann Maynard, who we first met back in episode one. October 11th of 2000, we had a large cold slurry spill. November the 2nd, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. December on our water bill on the back, it said if you are pregnant, infant, elderly, have a compromised immune system, consult a physician before consuming this water. If consumed over many years, it causes liver damage, kidney damage, central nervous system damage, and twice it says increased risk of getting cancer. And since December of 2000, that has been on our quarterly bill for almost two decades. So that threw me and my child under the bus from day one. And I'm not one to sit back and just take it. I have a voice and I speak up. I care about all these people. I care about water. So these babies that are going out to recess and PE, when they come in and go to the water fountain, it's like lambs being led to the slaughter. The English teacher contacted me and said, I feel like I know so much about you. Like 
I had half of my class did their paper on you. And I was like, I'm really proud of that. That means that, that all this next generation is seeing that I'm, I'm standing up for something, that I'm being heard, and that it is possible for them to have a voice and be heard. West of Barbie Ann in the town of Charleston, West Virginia, Karen Ireland would make a similar discovery about her family's health. The main frustration was, you know, I'd gotten sick, my kids had rashes on their faces, there was this huge, uh, at best, was a huge inconvenience. And then, you know, for people who were um, in outlying areas, it was, you know, way worse than just inconvenient. First of all, I think there's something powerful about um, uh, a mom, you know, coming to her legislature and saying, you know, what, what are you doing here? Because my kids are being affected. And, and frankly, unfortunately, I think, you know, maybe because I'm a middle-aged white woman, I was listened to more than, you know, um, I might've otherwise been. And also, I certainly have had experiences where I've faced derision and, um, uh, you know, there's the whole gamut. Like, do I sometimes smile a lot and act very cheerful and happy to see um, a legislator who is a man? Yeah, I do. Do I um, face, like there was a, I testified in committee this past session and I went to watch my testimony later because I couldn't like on the recording because I couldn't remember everything I said. And there was a legislator like kind of in the row behind me in the audience, just like you could tell he was like talking and saying probably not great things about me. And it was, you know, it's, it feels gross, but all of the things that we face, I think as women are just amplified and when it comes to dealing with um, predominantly male legislators and industry people, you know? So sometimes I, I feel like I do a fairly good job of maintaining good relationships, at least superficially good relationships um, with people who are my uh, peers from industry, but it's still, you know, heavily um, male dominated, like the coal industry is obviously a heavily um, male dominated field and also like they would see someone like me as, you know, perpetuating the war on coal or whatever. Karen now works for the Sierra Club as an environmental lobbyist, trying to communicate the urgent warnings of environmental degradation and crumbling infrastructure. She stresses the important role many women play in this. We have already cut our time on Earth shorter through carbon emissions and the destruction of the natural ecology of Earth. The environmental movement aims to stop that, and it is women like Karen who are on the front line of this fight. It was Bell Hooks who said that black women expand the role of motherhood into caring for one another, for children, for black men, in ways that elevated our spirits, that kept us from despair, that taught some of us to be revolutionaries, able to struggle for freedom. The activists at the foreground of the environmental movement, particularly in places like Flint, 
recognize that care for the earth and further communities are one and the same. That protecting families, workers, and their water were all part of the same struggle, the same underlying issues to be confronted. One such activist is Gina Luster, a mother and Flint resident who we first introduced in episode one. A woman who is both the teacher and the revolutionary in her work battling the water crisis. From day to day, um, my job changes every day. I mean, just being an activist alone, you never know what's gonna fall in your lap where, you know, you could be sleeping, you wake up and a law has changed or a bill passed or it didn't pass. And you kind of have to just jump on the spur of the moment. There's been times where I'm getting my daughter ready for school and watching the morning news and they talk about a bill and I'm like shoving her on the bus, jumping in my car, driving to our state capitol, going to bang on some of the uh, uh, state reps' doors. And it's, it's just really a job that I can't, people always say, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, every day it's something different. For Luster. One of the main influences to get involved in activism was the birth of her daughter. Oh, my daughter wants to say hi. Hi. So, I'm going to get to her. She's part of the story, too. She's tall. She's 12. She's five foot six, and she just turned 12 about two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, she's a giant. Um, when I first moved home, I didn't, I didn't have any kids. Um, and shortly thereafter, I moved home. I got pregnant with my daughter, who's now 12. And especially becoming a parent, that really put the fire up under me to get out and do something. I'm sick all the time. It's just crazy. But So I'm like, I'll go to jail for, for insurance. I'll go to jail for water. I'll go to jail for insurance. And I'll go to jail for the environment. I got a few things, and my daughter. I'll go to jail for a few things, so. <laughs> just crazy, crazy. Just imagine in the morning, I'm trying to get a, well, she's she's 12 now, I'm trying to get a six-year-old off to kindergarten in first grade, and can't use the water, you know. I'm bottled water to brush her teeth, bottled water to wash her face, and then I, the schools really, at that time, didn't have water for the kids, and they had taped off and roped off all of the fountains in the schools. So I'm now sending my daughter to school with more water bottles than books. I have to, her book bag is supposed to be for books, but no, I'm shoving it with bottled water. The experiences of these women are varied by race, class, and sexuality, among other things. And in Flint, where over half of the population is Black, water activists must also struggle against the deeper problems of institutionalized racism, along with the disproportionate effects of pollution and climate change. In 2015, when the full extent of the Flint water crisis was beginning to reveal itself, it was the moms of Flint who truly raised the first alarm that something was very wrong with their water. Pediatrics 101, like, is the, like one of the first things that we learn in as pediatricians is that moms are always right. Like, trust the mom. You know, listen to the moms. If the mom says the kid is sick, the kid is probably sick. If the mom said the kid's burning up he, and, and he doesn't have a fever in the, in the office, he probably did have a fever at home. So, you know, it's, it's all about listening 
and respecting what what patients and people have to say. Um, and that was absolutely violated in Flint, and it's it's violated all the time. Um, I never should have had to do what I did in Flint. I, I never should have had to prove that kids were being poisoned. Mark Edwards never should have had to come and test the water. Um, first of all, our crisis never should have started, but it should have stopped when that first mom raised a jug of brown water and said there's something wrong. Dr. Mona Anna who appeared earlier in episode two, is a pediatrician, professor, and public health advocate who is often credited with first exposing the water crisis. Despite media attention and Flint's own diversity while dealing with the crisis, Dr. Mona often found herself as the only woman of color in the room, something that speaks to the experiences of many women in the environmental movement. Medicine in general um, has shifted towards more women in general. I think when I started medical school, it was one of the first times that the entering class of medical students was 50-50 even. Um, But it's different in every discipline of of medicine. Um, In pediatrics, uh, we're about 70% female, um, including obstetrics, whereas a lot of the surgical specialties are are still more men. Uh, There was even... Um, a few years ago, like a task force that was created, like how do you get more men in pediatrics? Um, partly because when you lose men from a specialty, you the wages drop, uh, so salary drops, um, but also the credibility. Um, so there is um, obviously there is a perspective or, or a perception, um, not only for pediatricians but also for teachers and social workers of this kind of nurturing, caregiving um, perspective. Uh, which is definitely part of what we do. Like, and I, I, there's a lot of similarities between educators and pediatricians. Uh, so much of our work is not as much about kind of the child in front of us now, but really about the potential of that child and what we hope to kind of invest in our kids now to make sure that they have the brightest future possible. Um, so yeah, so that is about nurturing. Um, and that's okay. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, and I think if we we had more folks who had, that perspective, you know, then maybe we would be more caring as a society in general, not saying that women are the only people that are more caring or, or, you know, or empathetic. Um, But if you even look now at like the COVID issue, like the four countries that are doing the best are all led by women, like New Zealand and Iceland and Germany, you know, that have kind of, you know, led with, you know, being driven by science and public health and what's best for people. Uh, But uh, you know, it, it was interesting also to see how kind of my gender played out, you know, when, when it got really crazy and I had a lot of interviews and I was super busy, so many times people would stop, like I would be at an interview and some of the questions would be like, you know, how are you balancing this? Like, you know, who's taking care of your kids at home? Um, and then, he, you know, and then Mark Edwards, who, you know, was out of state, working around the clock, nobody asked him, like, who's taking care of your kids at home? Um, so there was also this, like, clear, like, difference in, in gender by, by media and by others. Like, but how are you working so hard? Like, isn't, you know, is, what about your kids? I also um, wanted to kind of share the perspective to other women out there that you can do this, um, that, that this is possible. Um, you know, it's never going to be like a 50-50 balance between like work and home. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs. Um, but, you know, this, this is absolutely something that is in your lane and in your wheelhouse. And the only way it was possible for me and continues to be possible is, is by these villages of support, not only in my home life, but also at work. 
it, you know, I, I think we all need to show a little more empathy and nurturing, um, no matter what uh, is our work, uh, no matter what our gender is. A few dozen miles away in Detroit, women like Monica Lewis Patrick face much of the same difficulties as those in Flint. The president and CEO of We the People Detroit and one of the leaders at the forefront of the water rights struggle in Michigan, one we previously introduced in episode three. I have daughters. I have a daughter that's 29, uh, that's a nurse. I have a daughter that's 21, that's an artist and a creative person. I have an adopted daughter that just turned 18. And then I have uh, several grandchildren and, and godchildren. Uh, and it's not just about those children, but I want to envision a world beyond those children. You know, the children that I'll never see, but are yet to be born, that have a right to be assured that they have access to clean, safe, and affordable water. And so to me, that is my stewardship. That's my responsibility. That's what I've been deputized to do. My children would tell you that it's, it's uh, become a family legacy <laughs> of participating at some level. And what I say to them, I all often say to folks because they'll approach them and ask them, you know, what is it they do as activists? And they'll tell you that uh, I don't pressure them to participate at the level that I do. But what I say to each one of them is that you must find something that you're serving your community in. And so, as I said, my oldest daughter is a nurse, but she has dedicated her time to work with younger children since she has younger children, uh, volunteering with her soccer and sports and activities. Uh, I still consider that a major contribution to our community. Um, she also is active in volunteering her time on health initiatives, and especially right now with COVID, she is a critical care nurse, so she hasn't had a lot of time off. Uh, my middle daughter is my activist. Uh, she is my put her on a plane and send her to California for the climate march. She is my baby that will organize in her school to help her teachers start a teacher's union when she was in the 10th grade. She is the kid that in middle school, when she found out there were several kids that were being targeted because of their sexual identity, she decided to organize a group of kids that would become supportive of that group of young people. Uh, she has always been the kid that had no problem confronting any adult about anything that she felt as though was unfair or unjust. <laughs> so she has been that kid for me. And then my youngest is really quiet, but she also, she and my middle daughters were a part of the young people that started We the Youth of Detroit. And one of the things they said to me, they were tired of being many times one of the few young people in the room for some of these policy and political conversations about water. And so they wanted a way for young people to get together and have their own conversations about these issues. And so they were very catalytic in bringing together other young people to form uh, the first group of We the Youth of Detroit, which has now grown to a regional uh, convening of young people called the Great Lakes People of Color Water Camp. So. Uh, I give them credit for that and thank them for pushing me and challenging me and really telling me what they didn't like <laughs> that motivated us to create something positive. What I stated from Mama Gwen about going in the room and staying in the room, but also from Councilmember Watson about Black women being the mothers of all mankind. And out of that, what we said is we can't stay angry because in anger, what we'll stay is we'll stay traumatized. 
But if we're going to move toward transformation, then we have to move in a way that says belovedness. A good mother loves her children. So it's through the framework of belovedness, not that we just love each other and our community and our children, but we deeply and dearly love our children and our community. So it's out of belovedness that we do our work. And it's out of that framework that we continue to work with others, uh, to work on ourselves, so that we're not staying stuck. Because we know that many of these bad policies are steeped uh, in institutional racism and spatial racism. We understand that these policies and bad policies come out of fear and uh, racial divide. But we also know that healing and wholeness you have to have somebody in the room that can envision healness and wholeness. And so we're envisioning that by saying that water is part of public health, water is part of a commons, water must be accessible and affordable and quality for all. And we believe that that is part of the first step that we as mankind are gonna to have to take in order to move toward our own healing and what we believe is a higher consciousness. It was Toni Morrison who said, You know, they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for houses and livable acreage. Occasionally, the river floods these places. Floods is the word they use, but in fact, it is not flooding. It is remembering. Remembering where it used to be. All water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. In the fight for water, there will be those who have no choice but to recognize the memory of the natural landscape those who cannot or will not move away from homes flooding from rising seawaters, with water sources poisoned by lead or coal runoff. The water warriors acknowledge the memory of the land and the power our environment has to get back to where it was. We may take clean water for granted, but the water warriors and their children cannot. This work of cultivating the beloved community is being done by those people who cannot choose to look away or take another route. They know that the only path to a safe and healthy future is through the work it takes to bring that future into existence. Sounding the alarm of pollution and environmental danger and being ignored, persistently showing up to town halls and protests, and community events to speak the truth. Working every day for victories others might see as small, like replacing aging pipes or providing water test kits and filters for your neighborhood. The work these women are doing is the same being done by activists around the world. The basic, essential care of both family and community. The often thankless work of creating a better world for their children. The water warriors work to create a world where the basic building blocks of life are clean and accessible to all people, regardless of income level, race, age, and gender. The beloved community is created by acting like it already exists. By having the courage to demand equal access to our shared natural resources, seeing land and water as a source of shared identity and common cause. The vision of the beloved community carried out by these women is grounded in justice, grounded in creating a better, cleaner future for land, for water, and for people. This is Poison and Power, the fight for water. Emerald Courage Project. We are your hosts, Desiree Boothenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Bridget Graham. Our musical score was composed, performed, and produced by Beck Trumbull, and the musical theme was inspired by Jillian Parker. 
More Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proofs. Next time on Poison and Power. One of our kind of signature lines, if you will, is everyone is downstream. So it doesn't matter where you are, the water connects us. Find and follow us across social media platforms. If you like what you've heard here, tell some friends, leave us a review, and be sure to subscribe to Moral Courage Radio so you can get the next episode as soon as it drops.